Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you will get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today and become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at podgo.co. And be sure to add Casting Through Ancient Greece in How Did You Hear About the Podgo section of the application. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece. Today's episode is going to be somewhat different to the narrative we've been following. But don't worry, we'll get right back on track next fortnight. I recently teamed up with Steve from Spartan History Podcast, and we recorded a collaboration episode. I had a great time talking with Steve, and we chatted for around two and a half hours. We talked about ourselves, our shows, while also talking about various topics around Greek history. The episode was unscripted, as you'll be able to tell, something I'm not entirely accustomed to yet. My thoughts when off script seemed to bounce around the place, but I had a great time and hope to do this more often with Steve. The episode has been broken up into two parts. What you're about to hear is part one, which runs for around an hour and 18 minutes. Part two of the conversation will be on Steve's podcast, found on all good podcast platforms. Alternatively, you can visit www.spartanhistorypodcast.com, but I've also provided links in the show notes. Also, you can follow Steve over at Twitter at Spartan underscore history, or over at Facebook at Spartan History Podcast. Also, for my Patreon members, I have uploaded the entire conversation on the RSS feed, along with the video version of our talk, if you prefer to watch. If you would like to support the series, head over to patreon.com forward slash casting through ancient Greece for access to these bonuses, plus much, much more. So I hope you enjoy the conversation, and remember, when you're finished with part one, head on over to Spartan History Podcast for part two. Okay, folks, well, we have something a little bit different today. I'm joined by Mark from Casting Through Ancient Greece, a fellow compatriot from Australia and podcaster, and we're going to work through just the general overview of where our shows are going, where they've been, and I guess to get to know each other a little bit better for the benefit of our collective and uh, and differing audiences. G'day, Mark. It's a great pleasure to meet you. G'day, Steve. It's uh, finally good to be catching up in, uh, I guess, sort of in person. Well, considering that the climate and social distancing, it's about as good as we're going to expect. And uh, <laughs> I guess for the listeners' uh, sake, we probably live, even though we live in the same country, we live roughly, I'm saying, 3,000 kilometres apart from each other. You're in Alice Springs, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're right on the East Coast and I'm right in the middle of Australia. The dead centre. Never yeah. been there. Yeah, what took you to Alice Springs? Well, I'm actually uh, from Alice Springs. I was born here, uh, moved away and then came back. So Is that right? Yeah. Okay. What's the, what's the population of Alice Springs? Uh, about twenty five to 30,000. Yeah, so right. Okay. Decent size. It's not too small, but uh, still pretty good. No, don't have to worry about traffic too much. Don't have to pay for parking. <laughs> and I hear you have the lovely uh, John Ulmus Rock nearby as well. The, uh, sorry? The, is it Uluru? Is that Uluru? nearby? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's still probably another four hours drive down the road. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
good old Australia. She's a big place. So um, I guess it'd be interesting just to, I guess, for my listeners who, who we don't share, just to, to hear a little bit about your podcast and um, I guess, you know, more about what influences got you into podcasting, what got you into history and just a little bit about yourself. It'd be great to, to, to hear. Yeah, sure. Well, I guess I'll start off with um, what got me into history. Um, I mean, I did history at school, but uh, while I was at school, I was never really interested too much in the subject itself. It was mainly after I finished school that um, I took up more of a fascination into it. I think it was more that I haven't got someone sort of guiding me in a direction. I could pick and choose what I wanted to look at and study. But basically from, I mean, I left school in around 2000. And since then, I've just been reading history nonstop um, and traveled through many different time periods. And um, I had a friend who was right into ancient history and he did recommend to me that uh, you, need to, you need to start reading about ancient Greece. And I was, uh, I was sort of at that stage more into modern, modernish sort of um, era history. And uh, I thought, oh, it sounds a bit boring, but um, I sort of <laughs> it in the back of my head. And then one day I ended up seeing, I think it was just a Penguin Classics version of um, Herodotus sitting on the um, shelf in a bookstore. I thought, oh, nice. I'll give it a go. So I bought that. I think it was like $12, so pretty good value. And um, basically once I sort of I read that one, I was, I was hooked. I thought this is, it's, it was almost like a whole new way of um, telling history, Not unlike, very unlike anything you find in any modern histo- um, historical work. And, um, Amazing that you uh, got through Herodotus. If it, it'll either either make you a fan forever or, or banish you from history's pages for all eternity. Yeah, I think that's what I enjoyed about it. There was so much that's just left to interpretation. Um, it's not a history in in the sense that we would call a history today. But again, this was like the very beginnings of what history would become. So um, I really like the the mix of traditional tales and. But then you've got the underlying of an actual his, historical work there as well. So I found that very fascinating. Anyway, that got me hooked on um, wanting to know more. So I basically continued reading. And I, you know, over the years, I ended up with a couple of bookshelves full of uh, books just on Greek history. But um, I must admit, once I sort of uh, read a lot through, I think I focused mainly on sort of where Herodotus picks things up and then I went all the way through to the death of Alexander. And um, then I was like, all right, time to move on to a new period. And so I started reading other stuff. Um, but for some reason, I just had it in the back of my head, there was always a, uh, this thing about, I want to know a bit more about um, Greek history. So um, I basically went back and I thought, there's got to be, I need to do more with this. And um, initially I... I basically took up studies in um, ancient history and I also did international history, which I think was more modern history. But um, I found um, the world of academia in history very unsatisfying um, <laughs> and it really was sucking my enthusiasm for the whole topic out. So, <clears throat> and then on top of that, young family, um, I know here in Australia at that time, I think all the courses in uni were almost doubling in price by that stage. And so I just deferred it for some time. But again, I was like, what, what else can I do with this? And um, obviously after listening to, you know, Mike Duncan's Rome many years ago and other <laughs> historical podcasts, I thought it'd be nice to do something like that. So 
I began just writing scripts, just rough scripts, probably for 12 months, just seeing what, what I could write. And um, in the end, decided to just go for it and um, started the series up. It's amazing. It's uh, interesting in that we had no collaboration whatsoever, but our podcast basically went online at roughly the same time. I think I started in November 2019 and you're a month after that. Um, yeah, it was towards the end of January 2020 that I started up. Yeah. And I think it was very soon after that that um, I basically stumbled across yourself and we uh, started exchanging messages. So it was good to sort no, of, been, guess, yeah. Um, Fantastic to have the support. Yeah, develop sort of parallel to each other, which was good. Do you think that, um, and I've often wondered about this, that, you know, the, the focus on ancient history in Australia is, is very low. Like when you talk about history in Australia, it's generally the history of the, of the world wars and possibly the Boer War as well. But, you know, do you think that's a, a symptom of the fact that the country itself is only just over 200 years old? And, and if we were to extend our history as Australians any further than that, you go back to the convicts and then back into English history. And for, for lack of a, a better description, we, we don't tend to align too closely with the English. Do you think that's possibly why there's not that focus in, in Australia? Yeah, I think uh, a big part of it is the fact that our, I guess, our sort of yeah, history is not very old, so to speak. I mean, so where do we draw upon to, to look back even further to our origins? I mean, and, and this can become a contentious issue too when you're trying to look, you know, what developed the West and then also uh -huh. looking at what was happening in Australia, especially within Australia, looking at this, it can become a bit a bit um, touchy, but um, yeah, I, I definitely noticed, um, I mean, when I was at school, it was a lot around World War II, um, World War I, uh, especially I did a lot around the Russian Revolution, which was interesting, but um, yeah, it, doesn't, it didn't seem to go too far back. Um, actually, I remember doing a lot of uh, ancient Egypt back in primary school as well, but um, I think that was down to our teacher who had a real fascination around that area, but um, mm -hmm. <laughs> It's but a yeah. funny one. I mean, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just, yeah, I was just saying, even at the moment, obviously, we're, we're approaching Anzac Day. I think that's uh, in a couple of days' time. And my daughter's at school. That's this week. It's all been Anzac Day, World War One stuff at, um, at school at the moment. So, and they're only in um, year three, year one. So, it's, but it's good to see that they're still um, teaching that sort of stuff. Yeah. And you, you yourself served in the military, I understand. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Back in the early 2000s. Yeah. So Anzac Day has a particular significance above and beyond what it would for ordinary Australians for yourself? Uh, yeah, and we've had a, a lot of family members that have served as well in World War Two and World War One. So um, it's good, and I'm trying to always just impart that on the kids too. So every, every year since they've been born, they've had something to do with Anzac Day, which has been good. Yeah, it's a, it's a real... It's a pilgrimage for a lot of Australians and New Zealanders uh, over there. I had the pleasure of, of working in Turkey for several years and did a number of, led a number of tours down to Anzac Day during the Gallipoli celebrations um, of the, the campaign there and um, really brought it home to me, not having a, a strong military background in my family. It was, you know, it was a public holiday. It was something that came up every year. But once you see the, the veneration that uh, you know, our countrymen and our countrymen are our fellow countrymen from across the ditch there, the New Zealanders have for that place. It, it really rammed at home. And there's, a, there's definitely a, one of those things that I think that most Aussies and Kiwis should get, a, get onto, on their bucket list anyway. It's a very important thing. It's one of the most significantly historical you know, events that took place in, in our country's history. Yeah, I definitely think um, it would have been great sitting there watching the sun rise over the, the cove there. 
but that would have been an amazing experience. It's cold, very yeah. cold. And, uh, you know, and you hadn't had a shower for a few days, but look, I think I, and like I used to say to a lot of my guests that if you can't sort of put up with a couple of days of privation and, uh, you know, no showers, no toilets, then, you know, you're not properly uh, honouring the sacrifice that was laid down by those people there. And what was even more interesting was that, you know, if the if the Turks, for example, had have sailed to Australia and, and, and fought a war against us, I, I doubt we would, you know, welcome their celebration of such an event, but they were so, so hospitable towards Australians and Kiwis when we were over there. In fact, a number of Turks said that, you know, we didn't know any better. You know, we didn't know who the Turkish people were. And I would imagine Australians in, in 1915 didn't know who the Turkish people were. We were going for, for king and country, so to speak. And they considered just a handshake, albeit a bloody one, between our two countries. So it's uh, it's something that, that they take very seriously as well. And, of course, the general of the Turks that, uh, you know, masterminded the victory of the Ottomans in that war, Ataturk, was that went on to eventually become the country's first president. So it's a you know very important day for the Turkish people too. It's amazing how the the passage of time can, um, um, I guess, alleviate a lot of those tensions. And it's it's interesting too. It's it especially with World War One and World War Two. It's when you're looking between the soldiers. It's not so much an ideological difference. It's basically mm. we were there to do a job. They were there to do a job. Um, it's over now, but um, and it, it doesn't seem to be any sort of ideological um, hangover to um, mm. catch everyone up on. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, while there were some, you know, overarching, overarching ideologies on, I guess, perhaps on the behalf of the opposition, on the ground level between, you know, man to man in combat, there, there really wasn't a lot of difference between the people there. They were just yeah, doing a job exactly as you say. Yeah. Tough absolutely. times. May they, may they never come again. Mm. Yes, but uh, things have changed a bit. So, with this world of smaller wars, but anyway. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's an interesting time to be at the moment. Well, yeah. So, okay. So that's what brought you into into history and in, into podcasting. Like, did you? Were there any other podcasts apart from Mike Duncan that you that you really that really stick out in mind that got you interested in podcasting? I remember listening to so. Um, I mentioned ancient Greece is something that kept calling me back. And another time period is the Napoleonic period I'm, I'm quite obsessed with. But there was another podcast I listened to. I'm trying to remember the name of it now. It um, came out quite some years ago. And it had an Australian guy that co-hosted it with an American historian. Um, I think it was like Napoleon 101, something like that. And they travelled through the entire Napoleonic sort of period. Oh, and wow. I enjoyed listening to that one. Um, Though I did find, um, how, how would I put this? Napoleon could do no wrong in their in their show, which I found very interesting. But it was still a very entertaining show to listen to. A little bit, little bit biased there. I mean, oh, yeah. for me, definitely, it was. Uh, yeah, I mean, Mike Duncan's history of Rome there was a, a massive influence on me getting to podcasting and. I really didn't research the the genesis of the show, and and I think I fell into the impression that as I was listening to it, it was it was quite current. And then there was an episode where they were mentioning a a tour of of Rome that they were going on, and I immediately you know looked on the internet, oh, when's this tour going on? I want to be a part of it. But lo and behold, it was it was five years previous, and the and the podcast had, had well and truly wrapped up by that point in time. But um, that was a big influence for me, and I've personally had a a massive fascination with with ancient Greek history, obviously. Obviously, in particular, the Spartans, but uh, the Romans as well were, were a really big one for me. But you know, 
after listening to Mike Duncan's, you know, retelling of the history, and it was right in that sort of period that I really enjoyed too. I'm not really big on the Byzantine era, but the the Republic and I guess the transfer into the Imperial era was a big, big fascination of my own. And after listening to that, there was just, there was really no other option. I had to fall back on, I guess, what was a childhood passion for myself. I, I had a, a real, a real, I don't know, a love of history from a very, very young age. My mother was, was a bit of a history buff. She was sort of a bit of a, eclectic history pursuer she had books on you know the Minoans she had books on the Egyptians on the uh on the Mesopotamian peoples as well she was right into language had a real affinity for words and and that really got me started on the the path towards towards history I suppose but I didn't have the opportunity to do any sort of study on on history even through high school uh you know where I went to school most people were Philistines as far as the, the history goes. And in order to do ancient history at high school, uh, it would have had to have been via correspondence. And, you know, as a 14, 15, 16 year old, the idea of, you know, sitting there listening to what would have been the equivalent of a radio show back in those days and sending off papers through the mail just didn't appeal to me. So I ended up doing, pursuing other things, but we got our, I think the first computer in about 93, maybe 94 and I had a copy of windows and we had a digital copy of, the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that really just, you know, it was basically like having Google search, but for history, you know, and for world affairs and all that. One of the first things I came across there was the history of the Peloponnesian War and the Greco-Persian Wars and then also the Carthaginian Wars. And those three, I guess, events, if you could call them that, really zeroed me in into what my, my future passions would be. And the Spartans in particular really stood out. And a few years later, I was taking a flight to Melbourne and I was really nervous of flying. It was my first flight that I'd ever taken in my life. And I was just looking for something to preoccupy myself with while I was uh, on the flights there. And I picked up a book by Paul Cartledge. I'm sure you've, you've come across his works before on the Spartans. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who's uh, done any ancient Greek studies will have Paul, Professor Paul Cartledge's work on there. And I picked up one of his books and, and yeah, it, the all thoughts of, uh, fear of flying or the plane falling out of the sky or something like that just vanished from my head as I was pouring through the words there. And that, and it really honed me in on, I guess, you know, where I'm at now doing the the podcast, but I guess what finally solidified it all was I'd always wanted to travel. You know, we didn't do a lot as a, as a family growing up. We didn't go too far. Like a, a trip, trip for my family would have been going, you know, half an hour down the road to the beach, which was fantastic. But I had the idea of uh, broader horizons, I suppose. And, um, I was working as a carpet cleaner of all things when I was uh, 19 and we were doing some, some water damage restoration work. And there was a, it was a, a picture shop full of, uh, you know, landscape photos and portraits and things like that. And some of the, the uh, objects were just relatively water damaged and they were looking to throw them out. And I came across a, a print by a photographer named George Mayers, I think it is. And he does a lot of landscape portraiture of uh, like the islands of Santorini and Mykonos, you know, the white buildings with the, the blue windows and, from that moment, I said, right, I know I want to travel. That is where I am going. So when I was uh, 21, 22, just booked a ticket, return to Istanbul because it was too expensive to travel to Greece at the time. And, yeah, from there, that was it. I ended up living up over in, in Greece and Turkey for about seven or eight years working in tourism and also teaching English to the in, in Istanbul to the Turkish people. And, uh, yeah, really from there, the last 10 or 12 years, it's just been nothing but probably very similar to yourself, just focusing purely on ancient Greek history and ancient Roman history and just reading, studying, accumulating yeah, bookshelves of books, which are you know, a problem in their own right. Yes, yes. 
So what, what made you, I guess, drill instead of with your show, instead of looking at, I guess, Greece as a whole, what made you drill down with just looking at the Spartans on their own terms? Hmm. It's a good question. Uh, if uh, you knew me personally, you know that I, I get very fixated on things and I, uh, I have a lot of trouble letting things go. So I wanted to tell the story of, of ancient Greece, definitely. But then when I, when I had a, a brief synopsis written down about how I would tell that story, you know, the show was thousands of episodes, you know, I just, uh, I, I would, it would be in a state of stasis for lack of a better term. I just would not be able to progress. So I thought probably better just to narrow it down a little bit. And I mean, I'm sure my listeners can appreciate that I, you know, I go into painstaking detail. So it was really just through, through convenience. I thought, okay, if I can focus on Sparta, which was, you know, of all the ancient Greek peoples, they were my favorite. Uh, I thought maybe I might be able to make some headway there, but you know, 24 episodes in and I'm still not really out of the, seventh century at this stage so there's a there's a long way to go so it's more just here for convenience yep okay yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah and, um i must admit i i did do uh when i was uh sort of penning out what i was going to do with my show i've i've gone the other way where my whole intention was i want to do a show that is just going to be accessible for anyone so it doesn't matter if you know what you know about greek history hopefully mm-hmm. i can you know, teach you something from what I know. And, but I still wanted to have enough detail there just to make it interesting for people that had an interest in Greek history. And um, I think that's when I started off, I, I'm penning, all right, I'm going to do a show on Athens or a show on Sparta's development and, and things like that. But I, as I went along and was um, drafting, I would find I would start separating episodes into two episodes and then all of a sudden they become three episodes. And, um, <laughs> Uh, it, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm covering probably in the early stages, uh, doing more of a context of leading up to uh, the classical period. So I'm not focusing on Sparta in the detail that you were, but um, I did find I was having to create new episodes based off of what I was coming up with. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah. You have good intentions, but by the time you start writing, before you know it, like an episode script might be at six, seven, eight thousand words, and you've got to make a decision there. Do you do you do you trim some things off, or do you just cut it and start with a you know a little mini series, I guess, within the show? But I, I really enjoy the way that you you summarise the. Uh, I mean, I'm envious of it, in fact, the way that you can summarise the topics and get it into such a nice condensed and crystallised format. And you know, I listen to all of your episodes, and I've been literally listening to a couple in the lead up to this discussion, and you really do have an affinity for um, for summary. It's something that I just have got have no ability to do whatsoever. So it's a real testament to your work there. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and I particularly enjoyed your Sparta. Your, your, this is Sparta episode. That's uh, that's top notch. Do you do you find that you use more sources like historical sources, or do you find you use more secondary sources when it comes to compiling your your work? Um, I tend to, I guess when I'm drafting, I look at um, more ancient sources first, where I try and, like, for example, I'll look at um, Herodotus, especially in the early stages, has been a sort of a go-to um, primary source. And then I'll use, you know, things like Plutarch and Diodorus and things like that to try and piece together because you, you do find sort of... Uh, I guess, differences with them, but you try and piece together what, what seems likely. But then I'll, I'll also have, I mean, in the back of my head, I've read many secondary sources too. So then I'll refer back to those to see how they've pieced the information together. 
do I agree with, do I think that's a likely way or do I think something different? And, and I guess that's sort of how my drafting sort of progresses. Mm. Who, I guess, if you could, you could pick one, who's your, who's your favorite ancient author? Not necessarily Greek, but who, who do you like reading? Well, I, I, I just have to say Herodotus because I mean, it's, <laughs> it's it's it was the first um, it's the first ancient historian that I, I read, and I guess you know he's responsible for basically this rabbit hole I've gone down. So, and I do I mean it's interesting to read you know Tyndareus and I mean Plutarch. I guess it's not so much a, a history but more of a biography with st- stories thrown in, um, Thucydides, which I guess is a bit more. I guess what you'd say a history, so to speak, but I just, I really find Horatius very colorful. Um, and I enjoy the uh, lots of ambiguity um, or all the little nuances within there that, you know, it's probably not true, but there's, there's something, something there that probably is. <laughs> the, the amount of people in the histories that, that had a premonition or a dream about their impending doom always amazes me when I'm reading Herodotus. It's like, my God, to, did nobody did nobody learn the lessons of the past there? You know, like if you've had a dream about, you know, for instance, that um, you know when the the spotted cow turns up, your empire is going to be destroyed or something like that, and you didn't take heed of that of that dream. You know, it's always amazing that, that Herodotus. There's always a, a mystical element into the unfolding of the events in history there, and uh, I love those little tidbits that he gives. Mm, and I find it's not just, I guess, a work of history. You've got you know, geography, you've got, mm. I mean, even philosophy is sort of thrown in there, he, how he puts conversations in certain people's mouths and things like that, mm. which is very interesting. Yeah, and I think as far as um, introductions go, the the first few lines of the of the histories certainly, you know, leaves no ambiguity whatsoever as to what this man is going to tell you, you know, that he records these deeds so that the that these times won't be forgotten by future generations. I'm paraphrasing, but that's, you know, that roughly what he sets down. And he, he certainly does that, you know, it's a monumental work. Oh, and, yeah, and he's responsible for where we get the word history from. I mean, you, you read that first paragraph and that just sums up what history is supposed to, to be looking at. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You think, um, you think perhaps that Thucydides was, was trying to uh, not only outdo Herodotus, but also Homer as well in the way that he was constructing his history. Yeah, it's, um, I guess, has he described more of like a, a scientific approach to, to history? But again, and this is the other thing, I mean, with Herodotus, you have um, points where he'll give you a couple of stories on certain aspects. He'll say, oh, I've been told a number of stories. And he'll say, I, I don't believe this or I do believe this. And, and even in the stuff he doesn't believe, he tells you what it is anyway. Mm. Whereas I find Thucydides only tells you the stuff he believes. So mm-hmm. you, 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 don't, you don't know what else was around at the time, you know, and, and obviously you have to question his, his connection to the period itself. I mean, he was a general during the wars itself. So, you know, um, there's got to be some, some bias there with how he presents his histories as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's for sure. I mean, there's there's definitely instances in Thucydides' uh, War of the Peloponnese that uh, where he says, you know, that that you know this isn't going to occur in his history. You know, where where I'm not going to be like that other historian. He never calls Herodotus out specifically, but I think he was also throwing back to to Homer and the and the Iliad as well, which which for all intents and purposes was a was a history for the for the classical Greeks and you know the the way that 
really joins the, the Peloponnesian War together to make this 30-year this conflict, whereas, you know, the Iliad was only a 10-year conflict. So for Thucydides, you know, he was taking on a, a task that was, in his mind at least, and probably his, his readership, three times greater than Homer. But, of course, and you'd understand this as well, that the, the Peloponnesian War wasn't a contiguous event running from, you know, 431 right through to the end of the war. There was, there was breaks in there. There was bad pieces. There was lulls in the fighting, you know, to call it a... To call it a continuous war is probably a little bit of a misnomer on Thucydides' part, but you can sort of see what he, what he was just trying to do. He was he was succinctly aware, I think, of, of what had come before, and he was looking to set his own work apart. Yeah, I guess he was trying to take out those sort of mystical um, elements out of the history. Mm-hmm. But it is also... Scientific, yeah. Yeah, and I think it is, it's telling, though, he picks up the history basically where Prodigus left off. Like, he doesn't seem to go back to try and rehash anything. So, mm. so whether that he's sort of, I guess implicitly saying that he kind of, you know, got the main gist of it, you know, what we believe to be true, but all the other stuff that's sprinkled in there doesn't agree with. Yeah. And do you think the reason why it uh, shuts off so quickly and so sharply is that that they just simply died? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it just seems like the most obvious um, explanation, I mean, from what I've, I've read. So, I mean, I don't uh, know else, yeah. what else to sort of put in there, but... Well, no, he sort of, it almost, it's almost like he's had a heart attack mid-sentence and, yeah. and that's it, you know, sort of stops there. And it's funny that Xenophon really picks up right at that moment and almost in his first line finishes that line that Thucydides was looking to, to get in there at the history. It's very strange. Yeah. And this is, this is the, I guess, the great thing for us too. As, as we travel through these periods, we've almost got this seamless, um, I guess, flow of... Um, primary sources we've got Herodotus that takes us up to a certain period then we can almost just seamlessly continue on in that period with Thucydides then where he leaves off we can then continue on with Xenophon and I guess we get a good it just gives us good sort of grounding with the primary source as we sort of continue through as well no absolutely absolutely yeah I think uh, for for favorite authors from the ancient period uh and look it's you know he, he casts back anachronistically often but i i absolutely love plutarch he was probably one of the first ancient sources that i read and you know i love the way that he's 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 more of a and i've called him this on my show before he's more of a moralizing biographer rather than a, than a historian you know he's very diligent in his in his source work and you know reading through plutarch you know can only make you yearn for a well, I guess probably the burning of the library of the Alexandria never to happen because he references so many different sources throughout his works there. And you just keep thinking, oh my God, it'd be so great to be able to have some of those sources there. But I really do enjoy his meticulous nature. And I think it was a, it was a stroke of genius what he did there to, to take the, the Greek world, which had fallen on extremely hard times uh, due to Roman conquest and, you know, living in the shadow of these monuments that were built of far greater times. But then, likening those Greek people to the Romans and to say that, you know, that we're not necessarily that different. And I really enjoy the way that he compares, you know, the, the mighty ancient Greeks to the, the ancient Romans of the time that were mighty. And some of them are just brilliant, absolutely brilliant comparisons, you know, to put Caesar up against, I think, Alexander the Great. That's just a, a, a miraculous way to go. Like, you couldn't compare to, to better people. Uh, some of them are a little bit, little bit out of the ways, but I really do enjoy the way that Plutarch writes his. So the lives for me would be the pick. Have you ever had the opportunity to read Ovid's Metamorphosis? Um, I've read not well, bits and pieces. I've read through it as I've sort of looked through um, uh, mythology. And I've just, yeah, I haven't read it in its entirety, but I've, I've picked out bits and pieces through it, yeah. 
yeah, it's, it's, it's a good reference for a lot of the stuff you would have been discussing earlier in your in your podcast series. But I, I couldn't recommend that book and of it more generally to the to the people listening today. That that man was an extremely well read author, and the the way that he manages to to pull references from from the deep dark recesses of of ancient Greek and ancient Roman history and put it into this narrative of of change, I guess, which as the title suggests, you know, the the entirety of the of the book of the books are, are all about change through through whether it's a, a spiritual change a physical change a metaphysical change it's a it's a heck of a read and his prose is just absolutely amazing to read so for him yeah, he's probably you know one of my real favorites as well hmm. so um i was wondering if you could could tell me like where where are you looking to go with the show from here on in and you know what are your plans for the for the future of the podcast um so i guess my when i first started out my idea was to begin sort of in a prehistory stage uh, of Greece. And then I guess the, the, the vision was to go, all right, up to the death of Alexander the Great, sort of, I guess, covering what's, you know, sort of seen as the end of the classical age. Though, I mean, the more and more I get into this, it's like, do I really want to end there though? So we'll <laughs> see what happens. But I feel like it's going to continue well past that as well. But I mean, I think that's, that's many years down the track too. Yeah, there's no rushes there. No, no. What about yeah, yourself? Yeah. Is Spartan history going to end at some point? or? Well, you know, it invariably has to. I mean, you know, the reason I started off in the in the prehistoric, I guess, phase of, of Spartan Greek history was, you know, when you say Sparta, the, the first thing 99% of people think is Thermopylae. You know, yeah. it's, it's the Battle of the 300 and, and that's the sexy topic. But I really wanted to tell the whole story and then, I'm a big fan of dichotomies and, uh, and Sparta is just riddled with dichotomies. You know, there's the, obviously there's the, there's the, the dual kingship that is the, the dual nature of, of most of their popular gods and goddesses. There's uh, and then there's finally the, the bronze and the, the iron age phase of the Spartan people too. And I think a lot of people don't understand that to, or, you know, may, may not be aware that, uh, that Helen, of Troy was first Helen of Sparta and there was a whole other facet of history that I thought needed to be told there. So I, I started off with that story and carried it right through to where I am now. But um, as far as where I want to go, yeah, look, I'm, I'm looking to flesh out the, the I guess, the, the reformation or revolution, if you like, of the Spartan government politics and, and societal practices. And obviously I'll eventually get to the, the Greco-Persian wars there and, and the Peloponnesian war. But I think the natural conclusion for my show would be the, the Battle of Lutra in 371 BCE. Uh, I mean, that's, as, as, as you know, that's the, the breaking of the Spartans uh, as, a, as a regional power and as a, as a Hellenic power in general. And they'd really become a, a second-rate state after that and, you know, a more of a, a fascination. And I think from there on in, you know, you really get confused with the, the mirage and the fact. And I just, I just don't think I have the heart or the courage to carry on a, a Spartan narrative from there with any sort of degree of of interest for the listeners. So yeah, 371, but you know, at my, at my rate, I go an episode a month and very painstaking through that may still be a, a couple of years in the future from yep. here. And no doubt that wouldn't be the end of um, your look at Greek history though, would it? Surely you would nah. be going elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've thought of, uh, you know, carrying the format over, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, what is, what is, Athens history podcast sound like, you know, or, or Theban history podcast or Corinthian history podcast. Uh, from there, I think it's probably worthwhile, you know, at least just putting down a, a body of work in and around the different polis uh, of, of ancient Greece. 
Uh, I think Athens is very attractive. Um, you know, it'd be, it'd be really nice to get into, obviously, all the classical playwrights, you know, Aristophanes and Sophocles and, uh, yeah, well, the names are escaping me right now, but the other, the other guys there. Yep. And also, I guess, the, the formation of the democracy, which you've covered in, in pretty good detail as well. There's a lot, lot in there, but, you know, to give a little bit of love to the Thebans and, and the Corinthians, you know, there's a Macedonians, even the Macedonian line, there's, there's, a, there's a lot out there that can really be picked apart. So, yeah, look, I'll make a decision. I may, I may do like a little poll towards the end and see where people were what, what most interested in, or I'll just go whatever way I think. But, yeah, I, I don't intend to, yeah, finishing podcasting from there. It's a, it's, it's, it's a great hobby. You know, it'd be hard to give up. It's too addictive. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. It absolutely it is. is. Yeah. It so, is. So. I was just, um, okay. with um, obviously you're focusing on Sparta, do you find, I guess, in everyday conversation when you're talking to people in your everyday life, and this topic comes up. Obviously, this is the focus sort of center on the, the Battle of the 300 and that movie. That movie. And, <laughs> and how frustrating does that get for you? Not at all. I actually get, I ask, yeah, you're right. I get asked that question a lot. And I mean, if I was to look at it as a purely historical piece of work, you know, it's going to fail every single time. But I, I, I mean, Frank Miller's a cartoonist. And, you know, I loved his work on Sin City uh, and I loved his work on, on the 300 as well. And I think, you know, if I was to have a, a mythological idea of the Battle of the 300, there's no better representation. And there's, you know, there's enough little tidbits in there for the historically minded person to go, oh, well, at least he's, he's done a little bit of research. You know, he perhaps knew his Plutarch, you know, and he might, might, he might have even read Herodotus. But I think if you're going to sensationalise uh, the Greco-Persian Wars and particularly Thermopylae, then... There's no better way to go about it. I was I was absolutely enthralled by that by that movie and uh, and I yeah I watched it only only about six months ago again for probably the seventh or eighth time. It's uh, you know whenever you want to feel uplifted, that's the place to go. And I think you know in, in reality the, the depiction of of Leonidas or Leonidas uh, is is a fair one. You know on a on a on a mythical sort of scale. He, I mean he had absolutely no intention of, of returning from that battle and nor did the, the other 300 Spartans that, that were with him. You know, the fact that uh, I think it is Herodotus who notes that the, all of the Spartan or Sparti equals that went to the war had sons of their own so they could carry on their line and, and uh, inherit the, the plot of land that was every Sparti its right. So I think that that, that depiction of the Spartans being so, you know, all encompassingly, uh, glorifying the battle i think it's a fair one indeed yeah absolutely obviously i um i did a couple of episodes covering those uh those movies love them um the second one i don't know that was lukewarm one and that was a i must admit that was a, that was a tough episode to write because it was just i really had to pick and choose what am i going to be talking about here because there was just so much i don't know so much wrong with it but anyway yeah but, but, <laughs> The first one, though, I was actually, um, when I sort of came up with the whole the premise of doing that episode, I hadn't watched the movie for quite some time. And um, so I rewatched it and I was jotting down notes and I was thinking, there's actually quite a lot in here that seems to be drawing on what can be found in the sources. And then I started picking each scene apart and I found, when it comes down to it, a lot of the themes and the metaphors that are tied up in there can actually be found in those ancient Greek sources, whether they're, you know, true or accurate, but they're actually, they're, they're, they're there. So I found mm. that quite interesting. Even just how scenes are represented. I mean, I, I get, you know, 
I get the same question too. You know, I write about Greek history. Oh, is 300, is that actually real? And, um, <laughs> and I feel like, well, in some sense it is. I mean, again, I think that the biggest, going into that movie, you need to understand that you're watching a story that's told by a Spartan and he's retelling it to other Spartans. So I guess you, you need to understand where it's coming from in that respect too. So obviously it's going to be talking them up and, and demonizing their enemies and, and, and those types of things that, but I also found it interesting because I guess uh, someone's like, Oh, the movie with a charging battle rhinoceros, you know, <laughs> and, but then you, you look at that scene on the, the second day and it's, you know, you've got these elephant, obviously there were no elephants in this narrow pass and cavalry charges and, and, you know, battle rhinos charging into the line. But to me, it's, you've got that um, part in Horatus's book where he travels through kind of like what Homer does with his catalog of ships and goes through the Persian army and, you know, talks about these people from this region, how they were armed and what they had. And to me, it seems to be a representation of what's found in Herodotus where you've got the elephants. So this is the, the Indian part of the empire. Then you've got the rhino. So you've got like the, the African part of the empire and just the different types of troops that, that are thrown up against, against the, um, the Spartans there seems to be just calling on all the different areas of the um, Persian empire. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a good point you make too about how it was a, in 300, it's a it's a Spartan telling the story to to other Spartans, you know, played by I think it's David Wenham, isn't it? The yeah. our fellow Australian actor there, yeah, yeah, playing the part, and that's a that's a good point. And I think I think you know, for in the minds of of the classical Greeks of the time, uh, their idea of what would have occurred at that battlefield probably wouldn't be too far off from you know Frank Miller's representation, and certainly Herodotus, you know, he doesn't shy away from from sensationalism. You know, the the amount of well, he designates rivers and watercourses as, as either ones that were entirely drank dry by the Persian armies or ones that weren't quite drank dry. And then you know, the, the ludicrous numbers of the troops and the soldiers and the, and the ships, you know, I think it's 2 million soldiers, I think he puts it, puts it down yeah, as loosely. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, but you're right. The second one, oh, that's a travesty. You know, that's, there's just so much that they, they got wrong with that movie that it's hard to watch it with any sort of understanding uh, of history and, and go, oh, you know, yeah, I mean the the fact that it's the Spartan Navy that turns up at the end there yeah. to save the day, and I mean you know look Sparta, it's contentious whether they had a sort of thalassocracy in the sixth century, but certainly by by the Greco-Persian Wars it was Athens that was the predominant thalassocracy in the region by far and away, and, and Sparta's navy would have you know been loosely called a, a minor flotilla if that, and uh, and the way they completely. Uh, disjointed the Battle of Salamis, and it was—it really didn't appear to be a, a major Athenian victory. Moreover, it, it, it felt a little bit more like a like a land battle. Like it was—it was very strangely done at the end of the day. Yeah, just those tangle of ships and just jumping from ship to ship on horseback. Yeah, yeah, and I, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think they did. Uh, is it Artemisia? Is that the—that's the Artemisia? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't think they did her a lot of justice either. And I, and I do, I do like Ava Green, but. Uh, I struggled with that with that representation. Yes, um, it, to me, it really—I don't, I don't know—I think they were really drawing the bow, and uh, you know, you got the no, the notion of um, in Indian horrors, you find this, you know, the, the 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 women behind the scenes that were sort of in the court manipulating things, and they've sort of taken that to the nth degree and inserted that into Artemisia. But um, 
ah, well, you know, there's that Greek uh, classical Greek misogyny was always a good one. That you know that the that the females were always that the at the root of all evil there, and and they were nothing but a corruption on you know manly virtue and things like that. It was a very convenient excuse for the ancient Greeks, and I guess they probably took a bit of liberty that with the with the movie itself. Yes, even I don't know. I I just didn't get on board with um, the casting for um, for Themistocles either. It just <laughs> yes. it, it didn't seem. I don't know. I always, I always had this vision in my head. If I ever got to do like a mini series on the, the Greek and Persian wars, I'd want like a um, a younger sort of Sean Bean playing my Themistocles. Mm. It just mm. seems to um, fit that type of character. You know, a sort of a rough around the edges, cunning sort of character. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. Yeah, well, I guess in, in that vein then, and and understanding that you know Leonidas was uh, was sixty years of age roughly when he when he fought at Thermopylae. Uh, who who would you think would be better to play him than Gerard Butler? You got an actor in mind for for that role? Um, I haven't really because I know obviously he he was meant to be older, but I, I found Gerard Butler just seemed to to me it worked. It, it seemed yeah. it seemed like a good good choice. Worked for me. Yeah, but I just, I just I don't know. Themistocles, I just didn't. I wasn't on board with it. Yeah. Now pe- people only listening and not uh, not seeing here. May may miss, but I can see that you you you're a secret uh, laconophile in the background. There, there's a shield with a with a lombarda on it behind you. There, is that correct? Yeah, just a replica one. Uh, oh, really? It wasn't. It's not from not from Plataea. No, unfortunately not. <laughs> I think it's a, a bit. It's not quite big enough either. I think another um, sort of uh, ten centimeters on the diameter. It might be a bit uh, more realistic. But um, no, I just yeah. picked that up on a. Um, of all places, uh, like a, like you know, you're on Facebook, you, you, your uh, marketplaces, and someone here in my town was selling it, so I, I just saw it and I was like, in Alice it? Springs, yeah, it was um, <laughs> the story. I don't know how true it is, but um, supposedly um, they had a family member that worked on the set of Three Hundred, and they family member had given them the shield and and. Uh, they ended up with it and were moving and didn't want it anymore. So managed to pick it up for, I think, 20 bucks. So that's a, is that a, a shield from a prop from the movie? Supposedly. I, I don't know how accurate that is. It's, it wow. is quite, it is quite solid though. It's pretty heavy. So. Yeah. 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 That's well, okay. That's, that's got some, some pretty good provenance to it then. That's uh let's get some, get some respect from me. And I did, I did look closely when I was watching 300 last where um, some of the shields have got, seems like the same dings and scratches in the same place that that thing has. So, ah, you fancied yourself for picking that shield out of the movie, hey? Yeah. <laughs> so I'll just run oh. with that story for now. Ah, well, <laughs> works, works fine for me. It works fine for me. So I guess we, 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 we discussed off air that we were going to sort of talk about uh, like a couple of topics today. And I think for yourself, we were going to look at, I guess, just a, a rough overview of the, I guess the formation of the the Athenian democracy, and and in all good conscience, I couldn't I couldn't possibly add anything to that discussion. So, I guess the first thing I'd really like to know is, can you tease apart the word democracy and, and how it how it differed in, in meaning to the ancient Greeks to what we consider democracy today? Okay, yeah. So democracy basically comes from two words. So you got demos, the people. And kratos, so power, so power of the people. And I guess once in once it was, uh, I guess more developed in Athens. 
the whole notion of democracy was a, a, a direct democracy. So if you were a, a citizen, again, this is democracy is only extended to citizens. So we're talking about male Athenians that, mm. of, of Athenian birth. And everyone had a say in decisions that were being put forward. So, I mean, if, if, if a war was being voted on, if, if uh, Athens was looking at going to war with someone and you went to, to cast your vote, you were basically sending yourself to war because as a citizen, you would be fighting those wars yourself. Whereas now um, we've outsourced, I guess, a lot of that uh, people power to representatives that take it to parliament, especially well, here in Australia anyway. Yeah, okay. Now, just quickly, my numbers might be a little bit off, but I've, I've read the various figures of, of male citizenry within Athens and Attica more generally. Was the, was the number around about 200,000, 250,000 during the, the 5th century? Um, yeah, I think um, you had quite a large number, but the, the actual people that could actually meet would mm. have been far, far less. Yeah, yeah. And, so, what do they need? What do they need for a quorum or for a, to be able to pass a legislation? Was there a certain figure they needed to to vote? Um, well, now you're testing me, getting further on into, <laughs> into the because uh, I haven't really covered too much of, um, I guess, the the later developments of democracy. Mm. But um, um, I'm going to have to pass at the moment. I've, uh, no, it's, it's fine. I was just curious because it's, yeah. I wonder that it's such a, I mean, I've, I've been to Athens and I've, and I've traveled Attica fairly extensively. And, and I guess the, the region that would, would encompass the, the voting population is quite extensive. Like, and, and, you know, I, I, I give Athens a, a lot of grief in my show for, for its fickle uh, government. I can't, and, and how capricious it was. I can't imagine them, you know, calling a, you know, an assembly and then waiting for the, you know, the obligatory seven or eight days for, you know, the entire male population of the region to us to assemble. So I'm assuming that the the people in in Athens itself had a had had a lot more power as far as governance goes than say somebody from one of the outlying deans. Yeah. And I mean as you say they're they're quite uh fickle. It seems to be, I don't know, I think Athens, ever since sort of the, the inception of democracy came about, you have this fighting between the people and you know the eupatridae the nobles even as democracy developed it seems to it just seems to be this hangover of this this power struggle that that began in the the archaic period that then led on into the classical period as well which doesn't ever seem sorry the eupatridae the eupatridae were they is it the council of the Areopagus? um so you've got so the Eupatridae were like the, the the nobles, like the the well-born within Athens, right? And then, and and they were the ones who had held power in the beginning. So you had, I think, um, you had your archons, and the archons were always chosen from the Eupatridae class in Athens, and then you had the Areopagus. So this was the the council where or um, archons, people who had served as archons would then serve in the Areopagus. And you could almost argue that perhaps the Areopagus had more power than the archons actually did because uh, they, you know, you know if, you, if you didn't sort of, as an archon, didn't sort of go the way they wanted you to, you could risk losing your admission to the Areopagus later on. 
Right, right. So it looks like a sort of an oligarchic structure above. Yeah, so you had basically the few at the top that were governing things and their interests were the only ones that were being met and they would, obviously, it would be, change would be very, very, very slow if it ever did happen. And um, you still had an assembly, which it's thought that this was maybe a hangover from the Bronze Age, but more of an assembly where a king would come and announce what was happening. It was like a, a gathering of people, but um, it seems to still be in place, but served no real function at that time. Yeah, yeah. So where do you see the, the genesis of, of democracy? Like where does it sort of start? Well, who does it start to formulate with? Is it is it Solon, or does 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 the the quasi mythical or mythical Theseus does he does he have some attribution towards it? Where do you where do you see it beginning? Um, well, obviously, yeah, they talk about uh, Theseus and creating a commonwealth of uh, cities in Attica to create the first democracy. But I mean, obviously, we see that there was um, an oligarchy in place as the archaic period was coming about, and I think. It probably has something to do with, I think this, and I think this is a similar concept to Sparta, but um, you've got, uh, coming out of the Dark Ages into the Archaic period, you've got an explosion of people, of a population that, that seems to increase dramatically. And it just seems to, uh, when you've got the, the few at the top that are ruling, and then you've got an ever-increasing size of, of people within that society, you're going to start to have issues around governing because with more people, you're going to need to put more governances in place to be able to control populations and do whatever else. And I think this is, this is where the discontent between rich and poor starts coming about. And we find, especially in Athens, you've got a lot of uh, people paying debts, like so farmers and whatever else, to the rich, and they'll be, be selling themselves into slavery. And what you'd end up finding is more and more land would start be accumulating by the, by the rich because the poor can't keep hold of it or pay their debts and they'd end up basically slaves on the, their former lands that are now owned by the Eupatridae. Yeah. But um, where it started, I mean, because this is the interesting thing too, where you get obviously the whole notion of tyrants seem to be born out of this um, power struggle between rich and poor as well. Mm. So a tyrant more than often would have the support of the people and the populations and they would have the backing and would try and take power. And obviously back in these times, tyrant doesn't mean what it means to us today. Yeah. Um, it was someone who gained power by irregular means <clears throat> and a tyrant could be, you know, quite a, quite a good leader just depended on their character too but um so i think the first the first time they talk about athens getting a well potential tyrant was they talk about kylon and um yeah. though i'm not so sure because and there's two reasons here he um he made a bid try, trying to capture the acropolis now, all of the backing he had came from his father-in-law, who was tyrant of Megara. So was there something going on there between them? And what then I think questions whether he was installing a, a tyranny was he didn't seem to have any, the, the population on his side because the general population came out and besieged him. <laughs> so his, basically his bid on power failed. 
So he just didn't have the popular support there. Yeah. But, um, and then we then... Sorry to interrupt, just quickly. Yeah. Could I... Is, is that where the enmity between Megara and Athens began during that period? Uh, yeah, because after that, they I know um, when Colin was besieged and, and so were his supporters, that had, and a large chunk of them had come from Megara as well. Mm. And after... Kylon supposedly escaped, but uh, many of his supporters were executed by the Athenians. And this... that's fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. Because I mean, even I mean, one of the the possible precursors to the Peloponnesian War was the Athenian embargo on trade with Megara, which was a Spartan ally at the time, which sort of you know, which more or less forced the Spartans' hand in towards one of the many, I guess, flashpoints that were occurring in that period. That's it's fascinating. And we find well, even with with many of these influential leaders, they seem to have gained their popularity from conflicts with Megara. So it's, um, and there were, it was to do with um, trade as well, where Athens was being starved for their trade networks. But um, yeah, so you had Kylon and then the next sort of major figure that comes along is Draco. So I guess most people have heard of Draco as the, the lawmaker mm. and, mm. you know, his draconian laws because everything, mm. Everything was punishable by death. <laughs> Why was that, Mark? <laughs> Sorry? Why was that? Well, because um, supposedly even for minor, minor, law, uh, minor infringements, he saw death as being the only, uh, the only punishment. And so for more serious ones, he couldn't come up with anything uh, worse than death. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> but um, the other thing, interesting thing is, um, he seems to be credited with giving a fighting class more political power as well. So, and this sort of ties in with perhaps the rise of hoplite warfare and phalanxes mm. and where now more people were, were seeking political power because they, they basically, they were the ones that were in the field that were fighting for that, that city state. And I don't know. I feel like this is a, a very a similar theme with uh, Sparta and their realization of needing their standing army and the, the hoplite force developing where certain mm. reforms. And I think this is uh, political reforms seem to really sort of tie in with this this thought of um, the hoplite warfare as well. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good point. Actually, I've, I've just quickly, I, as an author, Robin Lane Fox, who who basically puts the rise of democracy down to the phalanx, calling the phalanx a, a democratic mode of warfare, whereby, you know, the, the massed ranks of cavalry charge, which would have been the traditional preview of the of the nobles who could afford horses, were basically ineffective from that from that point on. So the, the nobles really had to relinquish some of their power to the to the people who could form up in these serried ranks of spears and and, and mow them off the battlefield. Yeah, absolutely. And then and later on you find the same thing with uh, the rowers in Athens. Obviously, mm. you know, these people that are from the, the lower, very low classes now have so much, you know, Athens relies so much on, on their, contrib their contribution to the defence of Athens now. So political power needs to be extended to them more so as well. Right, 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 okay. But um, obviously a lot of people do um, highlight Solon as being the, the father of um, democracy. So and was Solon after or before Draco? So he came afterwards. So supposedly a lot of the uh, the reforms of uh, 
well, law reforms and potentially uh, whatever political reforms he may have had uh, came about, but it doesn't seem to have stopped the, the faction or the, the class fighting in Athens by that stage. Right. And do you put him as a, as a purely historical figure or do you think there's some sort of, you know, like Lycurgus who we'll be speaking about soon, do you think he's more mythical? Um, I feel like he is a historical figure just because of um, the background he's given where he's, he's shown as... Uh, he, he was given command of Athenian thought, uh, forces against um, Megara. And this is where he's earned, I guess, became uh, earned his fame and, and his, his respect in Athens. And this was what led him to be chosen as the Archon or extraordinary Archon that was taking more power to enact these reforms as well. Though everything that's um, ascribed to him, I don't know, can we ascribe all of what, what's been written about that? Yes, that's that's. I think more the question is, what can we actually attribute to him, and what's maybe came before or after him? So understood. But um, I, I know he's he's definitely um, some of the biggest things he was known for was uh, the shaking off of burdens. So it was about so Athenian citizens couldn't put themselves up for security anymore, so they couldn't be sold into um, slavery, and. Um, a lot of cancelling of debts as well. So now supposedly there's, there's hints that he may have um, tipped off some of his um, noble friends. He was supposedly from the Eupatridae as well. So, mm-hmm. but he was not meant to be mega rich. He was, I guess, more at the lower end, but um, he's supposed to have tipped off some of his friends who then bought up a bunch of land knowing that they were going to lose those debts. But um He's got other things where, so there was a lot of um, uh, issues with trade because Athens was not a very good place to be growing wheat and um, those types of things. But it was for a farmer, you know, that, that were the types of things that was, they wanted to grow them because they could export them. Um, but then it left very little for, to feed the, the Athenians themselves. And he tried to stimulate the economy by making, um, olive groves, the, the basically the, the crop of choice. Um, and then he also had fathers were required to now teach their sons uh, a trade. So they would then grow up and I guess, either, I guess most likely they would take on what their father's occupation was. So you had a continual um, cycle. You didn't have any sort of areas that would be um, lacking in manpower. Um, and he's supposed to have, I guess, because it's seen Draco may have had something to do with this, giving Hoplites more power. And it's thought, you know, did he come up with some sort of council of 400? And then Solon's now also been considered with this, the Boule, the council yeah. of 400, which, um, and they were, the idea was they were to come up with the, all the agendas that would be put forward to be voted on. And they would come from all the different tribes. He had four different tribes in Athens by this stage. And um, he's supposed to have got rid of most of uh, Draco's law code, except for murder. So the uh, murder punishment stayed in place. And um, and he also created a new sort of rank structure in society. So this was, and it was based off of uh, wealth. So you had four different rank structures and the top three had um, involvement in, in more of a political life, whereas the, the lower the lower end uh, feats, they um, 
they could still attend the assembly, but couldn't be voted into political positions. But now you had not just the Eupatridae that were could hold offices, you had uh, like hot white class, like the they called them the yoke men, but they were wealthy enough to afford the armor that a hoplite would need in warfare. Um, now the problem is that in the end, a lot of these reforms wouldn't work, or they wouldn't uh, take hold, and especially like the the farming of uh, olive groves. I mean, it, it takes how many years for an olive tree to, to mature and um, yeah. so there wasn't really the incentive to take those up and um, he's also then after after these reforms are in place he's supposed to have uh, left on a 10-year travel around uh, around the Mediterranean kind of like uh, someone else we know but um, <laughs> and this seems to be a common thing with uh, I guess uh, these leaders that are ascribed with so many wise leaders that are described with so many reforms and whatever else yeah. but um supposedly this was in place because a lot of his uh reforms didn't specifically state if this happens do this it was more of a, a guideline and it was try it was basically left to the people to fit those guidelines to what was taking place at the time and and we are told at the end of the day that both rich and poor we're not satisfied with what he had put in place. He seems to have tried to appease both sides equally, but made no one happy. <laughs> a very Athenian. Yes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, I mean, some people sort of put the soul on sort of the father democracy. And he seems to have put some of these ideas in place, but they haven't taken hold. But the idea is still there. And they, because then they do become further developed um obviously it goes back through you know there's more class warfare that takes place and this is funny this reminds me of a meme i saw a couple of weeks ago with that um the evergreen ship in the the silver oh, tower yes <laughs> and um it was part you know blocking that it basically had the, the first the first picture was of a, a cruise ship heading through the the corinthian isthmus the the canal that's cut through there you know nice and neat and straight line and it's uh Athenians inventing uh, democracy and then the next picture of the evergreen, you know, sideways in the, the Suez Canal and this is the Athenians implementing democracy. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I don't think um, the invention of democracy was such a straight line though. There seems to be, there's so many, I mean, there seems to be periods of, it's not clear if civil war broke out, but there's hints that it may have. In, in between these periods as well. So there seems to be a lot of fighting between the classes even amongst these reforms and how um, democracy has been uh, constructed. Interesting. And so after Solon, was it Pisistratus? Yeah, so we had Pisistratus who came next and this would be Athens' first tyrant. So right. things were, uh, were pretty bad. And um, you had... Um, I guess three, they talk about three factions that have formed in Athens. You had the, the men of the plains, the coast and uh, beyond the hills. And he seems to be um, more popular with the people. So it, yeah, um, the others like the, the, the plains and the coast, they had more, they were looking more for the Eupatridae and different forms of government, whether it oligarchy and whatever else. And um, so Pisistratus became, I guess, a, a champion of the, of the people. And there was faction fighting between these three 
factions basically. And while the other two were sort of uh, fighting amongst each other, Pisistratus tried to, um, he rode into Athens, um, had, had someone or beaten himself up and uh, basically um, accused that the other two, his opponents and the other two uh, factions had um, tried to kill him and he would he was end up being assigned a uh, an armed guard and then oops. he tried sorry oops yeah and so um he then tried to seize power on uh from athens and this would be his first attempt on tyranny but in the end he would be uh his his opponents would come together and, and oust him so his uh his tyranny didn't take hold at that stage and then obviously all the faction fighting continued on and um then one of his opponents from one of the other parties formed an alliance with him and they uh, then tried to take power and they tried to invoke uh, the divine to do this one. And Herodotus calls this the, you know, what does he say, the, the silliest the silliest trick in the book. <laughs> Is this the story of the, the mock Athena? Yeah, so he, he, <laughs> they find a really tall, beautiful woman out in the, the countryside and they pass the word that Pisistratus has been returned to, to Athens by Athena. And um, they ride through on a on a chariot with this tall woman dressed up as Athena, and um, he takes power. Now the prop obviously had the backing of one of the other the other parties, and to, to cement this alliance, he had uh, agreed to marry. Um, I'm trying to remember his name. I think it was Megacles, was the, the leader of the other party, and he agreed to marry his daughter to sort of cement this uh, this uh, alliance. And it seems to have, while that alliance was in place, it was uh, all, all fine, but um, it worked out that he refused to, it was, this daughter would just be a sort of a, a secondary wife that uh, he had off to the side and he wouldn't, he didn't agree to have any children with her, which this then greatly offended Megafles. And once again, he's uh, taken from power. And um, he ended up, he ends up leaving um, Athens and, spend some time out. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to I can't remember exactly where he went, but he ended up getting some supporters and he was able to come back. And this is where he, um, he lands at the Bay of Marathon on his return with his supporters. And supposedly a battle was fought outside of um, Athens itself. And um, the Athenian troops are, are supposedly surprised and run back into the city. And he, he wields in with his, uh, his forces and then he uses another trick to uh, disarm everyone where he tries to address the crowd, but uh, no one can really hear him. So he says, everyone come up onto the, uh, onto the Acropolis where he can address um, everyone properly. And um, now you can't take your weapons up there. So everyone <laughs> has to leave them at the gates. And then all his supporters gathered all the weapons and basically disarmed all the opposition. And so his third attempt was successful and he became tyrant of Athens. So Athens' first tyrant was uh, Pisistratus. And we are told that he was quite a benevolent uh, ruler and was actually quite good for Athens and for, especially for the people themselves. But um, the thing you find, I guess, with tyrannies is you may have a good ruler, but they then uh, pass their, the power onto their sons. And uh, that's exactly what happened to Pisistratus. He, once he died, he had two sons, uh, Hippias and Hipparchus. And Hippias, being the oldest, took on the uh, tyranny. 
and we're told again it was you know it was all fairly um fairly uh good to live under their rule but until um an act of jealousy where um basically through uh some jealousy through uh, a male lover and what it culminated in was an assassination attempt at um a festival and his brother Hipparchus would be assassinated and the attempt was done on Hippias as well but uh, he escaped and but from that point on he basically became very very wary of everyone and just very suspicious of anyone around him by that stage that's and we're right, told yeah and we're told that um I guess uh <clears throat> our sense of the word a tyrant then sort of comes into being here where he acted like a tyrant as we would understand it mm-hmm and um, then I think it was another supposedly, well, I'm trying to think maybe 10, 10 or so years he ruled in this, in this way. And it was ended up being the Alcmionidae, who were one of the big Eupatridide families in, in Athens. Now, they had been previously um, exiled from Athens because of uh, when Chilon's uh, uh, attempt took place, they were the ones responsible for. They, they killed a bunch of supporters that were supposedly protected by a sanctuary, and this was seen as a great pollution. Uh, so while they were in exile, they then uh, turned to some of your friends, the uh, the Spartans, to try and oust uh, Hippias from, from his rule in Athens. Hmm. Most embarrassing for the Spartans too, because up until that point, they were, were quite supportive of the of the tyranny of the Pleistothartidae. So, Yeah, and I think... Um, and understanding the uh, the Spartans too, they were very very pious people, and mm. the Achaemenides uh, used uh, the Delphic Oracle to be able to impart on some, I guess, uh, some suggestions of what they should be doing. Yeah, yeah, I think they 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 received a commission right to rebuild the tel- Temple of Delphi. Yeah, and naturally they were in a pretty good spot to influence what the the Pythia was saying, and the the story goes that the Spartans were, I guess, making you know personal and, and political pilgrimages to Delphi as they as they often did on a regular basis to receive the the oracle, and the oracle, regardless of the request, would always say that the god Apollo will not be happy until uh, freedom is restored to the people of Athens or something like words to that effect, but. Yeah. Uh, the interesting tidbit about that is that, yes, indeed, the, the Spartans were incredibly pious and it was a well-known fact outside of Sparta as well. But the king in question at the time, Cleomenes, he wasn't really a, a pious man in that in the year 491 BCE, slightly after where we're talking about right now, he in turn bribed the Delphic Oracle to get his co-king Demaratus removed from power. So I guess, you know, on one hand, they, they were a pious people. But I think on the other, Cleomenes was more of a pragmatic man when it came to the the power of Apollo and, and his oracle there. And it's been been proposed that perhaps because Hippias was potentially a Medizer uh, and a friend of the Persians and Cleomenes by this stage was thoroughly anti-Persian, that that might have had a little bit more to do with um, with his reasoning behind going after Athens and removing Hippias from the, from the tyranny there. Yeah. And, you know, Herodotus, I think, I think it's... I think it's book five. He says he, he he quotes exactly what you're saying there that, that it was the Alcamonid family that that bribed the oracle to tell the Spartans that you know regardless of what they heard that they were to get rid of Hippias. But um, yeah, if you look into the detail there, it was, it was probably more to do with anti-Persian sentiment. Yeah, and um, and, and when you look at uh, Spartan history, that seems to come up with a, a lot with other 
other um, cities as well with conflicts with Athens and Magina and, and, and whatever else. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, obviously uh, the Spartans would be instrumental in ousting uh, Hippias from Athens. And, We're uh, happy to help. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then out, out of that, I mean, it didn't, didn't solve any issues either. But um, out of that, you had two um, other political uh, rivals that developed in Athens. So this is where you had uh, Chrysisthenes and Asagoras. And Asagoras, he sought the Spartans as supporters to install him in Athens as well. So it was interesting that um, they had uh, ousted a tyranny. I mean, obviously we're, we're saying it's, it's probably other political motives in the background, but they've ousted yeah, a yeah. tyranny, but now they're going to support another tyranny to, to mm. be installed in Athens. Now, obviously... Chrysostomy seems to have a lot had a lot more influence with the people because when the Spartans came in that second time, from memory, it was only a small force that they came in with, mm-hmm. but the people came out and besieged them on the Acropolis, yeah. And um, basically, they had to they ended up surrendering and um, left left Athens, and then so Chrysostomy at this stage had actually left Athens for his own safety. And so he wasn't leading this uh, this siege, so to speak. But um, once everyone was kicked back out, he was recalled and installed because he had given promises that he would give the people much more power. And this is now where the assembly becomes much more important in Athens. And I think the Council of 400 has now increased to the Council of 500. And we get... Um, because we had the, there was the, the big problem, obviously, with the uh, factions that were for, the political factions that were forming around Athens, and he created this more complex system that would see. Now, me trying to explain the system off the cuff is going to be impossible, but um, okay. <laughs> um, this is where we now have the ten tribes come into effect. Yeah, in, yeah. In Athens, and you basically have the deems that are broken up, which are like local governments within areas. And then everything's broken into geographical areas as well. So you would have a tribe, but within that tribe, you would have people that would end up being from all different geographical areas around Attica. So it would be much harder for a political faction to form within the tribe based on their geographical locations because you're going to have different wants and needs from different people depending if they live you know, in the hills or if they live near Athens or if they live on the coastline. So... This saw a way of trying to avoid those um, yeah, sort of factions forming and this sort of faction warfare taking place. Yeah, my understanding is it was more of a, was a breaking down, I guess, of, of familial and, and I guess, uh, clan relationships and making it more about a, a tribe or a greater selection of area to sort of give people a little bit more uh, connection to, to yeah. other other facets of the population right and that sort of you know that that really helps spur on the democracy from there yeah and that's and that's one of the other reforms he put in place was instead of someone being known by such and such of their father's name it was now more where they were from yeah yeah and so you were and he was trying to basically break that that line of noble birth i mean but you read you read ancient history and no one it doesn't get away from it does it never absolutely described through their uh, their birth line so but yeah, he tried yeah. to attend it and he also um the the whole concept of the olive groves that solon put in place where olives would become athens main export that finally took hold because he was able to give farmers 
small loans. So while they were waiting years and years for their crops to mature, they were basically not in debt when they were doing it. And so the idea was basically Athens was a perfect place to, to grow olives. And so olives and olive oil became one of the top exports, which they could um, export out. And in this way, they could then purchase the grain they needed and bring that into Athens because that was just not something they couldn't grow in abundance to support their population. And, Very interesting. And with that, the pottery market um, took off as well because you had to store. Yeah, the attic there. wear. So yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah. But yes. in all the museums that you see. Yes. So I mean, that roughly takes us up to where the sort of the Greco-Persian Wars start uh, developing, and so. Oh, yeah. You're looking at a, a, a much more uh, democratic sort of Athens by this stage. And then that's where people have then also labelled Clasisthenes as the father of democracy as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. Yeah, well, I haven't really researched it as heavily as I perhaps should. That's, um, that's an interesting synopsis. So thanks for bringing it up to date because I wasn't sure if it was Solon. I'd heard Chiron before. Yeah, Draco, obviously, his law code. And, yeah, I think, I think Clasisthenes, as you say, he was the one that really put the finishing touches on the, on the democracy. Well, I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation. As you could see, this was quite a different approach than the rest of the series. I would love to hear your thoughts on this format, as I would like to engage with other podcasters and authors in conversation, releasing these episodes in amongst the narrative series as it progresses. Anyway, let me know what you think and if this is something that you would enjoy hearing along with the main series. For part two of our collaboration, head over to www.spartanhistorypodcast.com or on your favourite podcasting platform and search a Spartan History Podcast. And make sure to follow Steve over on Facebook at Spartan History Podcasts and on Twitter at Spartan underscore history. Lastly, for those of you on Patreon or those wishing to begin supporting the series, the entire conversation can be found there in the feed along with the video version of the entire conversation. Thank you everyone for the support, and I look forward to seeing you when we continue our narrative in the series with episode 31, Victory in Greece.